0: welcome to the get real about safety podcast in our podcast we discuss the new view of safety what works and what doesn't work to break down old paradigms and help you improve safety performance in your organization hi i'm mike
1: and i'm pam and we appreciate you listening please share and subscribe and tell others about this podcast you can find us on most podcast platforms and also on youtube So good morning. Mike.
0: Morning, Pam. How are
1: you? I'm good. And I'm probably doing a little better than you since you have, uh, been post knee surgery, but you are improving, but it has been a journey.
0: Yep. Yep. You know, get the surgery. They said it won't be that bad. They said the recovery (laughs) will be easy. They said, so here I'm a few weeks later, but it is getting better. And, uh, so uh, I'm sure I'll look back on it. it would have been a good thing.
1: Yeah, you are getting better. And of course, if you had known all the details, then you might not have got out of the surgery and that wouldn't have been a good thing. And you did get a few curveballs along the way. But anyway, things are getting better and you have persevered and you haven't missed a lick with work.
0: No, nope. thank goodness for virtual training.
1: <laughs> thank goodness for that. Well, this morning we wanted to talk about safety training and safety training has been a huge issue in our lives Mm. and training, you know, not just regulatory training, but, you know, these days we focus a lot less on regulatory and more on the leadership, advanced safety management, human performance concepts, but you and I came up, um, doing a lot of our training in our careers with the OSHA Training Institute with Georgia Tech here in Atlanta and training uh, OSHA trainers and and other regulatory topics and so we've we have seen and got to know a lot of trainers out there
0: yep absolutely
1: and it has um, improved but the the one thing that made me want to do this Podcast is this concept and the movement away from check the box training. Yeah, if, thank because, yeah, thank goodness, because you know back in the day it was check the box training, and and fortunately we've still got a lot of folks doing that check the box, and and I remember that's how I certainly started in my career, is the which you know over quite a few years now. Started out with, you know, OSHA coming out with a new regulatory requirement. And the one that strikes me, and I know you remember this one well too, is hazard communication standard. No one has a communication standard was uh, applied to construction. Oh, yeah. And that was one of my first safety training, you know, uh, and got everybody in a room and talked about hazard communication, and everybody you know, sign their name. They were there and we checked the box and we were done. Um,
0: and then you ask somebody out in the field about what they learned in the training. And they give you that deer in the headlight look.
1: Well, not only that, when OSHA asked them yeah. about their hazard communication training and where the material safety data sheets, which is what we called it back then, is they had deer in the headlights. That's all that you got out of that.
0: And you got a citation.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, So it has gotten better. It's still an evolution. And I like to, you know, think hopefully that I've evolved. I think of starting out doing confined space training. And then probably one of the best training that I had the chance to participate in is, is established as my gold standard, if you will. And, and that, training that happened here in atlanta was where we did training classroom training in the morning and then we went into the into the field and the environment and we did practical exams and we started out you know everyone there had to um show that they could use the monitor that they could calibrate the monitor they could fill out the permit they had to set up the ventilation the exhaust ventilation, they had to go back then and retest after setting it up. They had to set up their tripod. They had to don their harnesses. They had to raise and lower somebody out of the space. And, and all of those things had to be done successfully before we considered, yes, they, in fact, were trained. Now, that kind of brings to mind, because that's a combination of training and education, which, as you say all the time, are not the same thing.
0: Yeah, that's correct. And, you know, I think it's really important to uh, distinguish between the two. Uh, Those terms are often used interchangeably, but education is providing people with a knowledge base. It's giving them information. And training, though, is showing someone how to do something. And so there is a difference between the two. And and, and in fact, even with OSHA, you notice that uh, they come from the, the Office of Training and Education, uh, as far as all of the OTI stuff that, that's done. Uh, they even recognize there's a difference between the two. And, you know, sometimes you combine the two, just like what you were talking about there, is you gave educational sessions in the morning to give a basis of knowledge to work from, and then the actual training was in the afternoon where it was the hands-on component of So there is a huge difference. Sometimes you combine them and sometimes you, sometimes you just do education, sometimes you just do training, but then again, sometimes you combine them as well.
1: I thought it was interesting. I was uh, teaching a class yesterday, we were talking about OSHA's program standards, safety program standards, and how that's evolved from the original program standards, just talked about safety training. And OSHA deliberately changed that category to safety training and education for that exact purpose. And, and that makes me think of another thing when you were talking about showing someone how to do something, and it reminds me of a term you use all the time. And well, you know, first of all, you uh, were a paramedic for a lot of years, and, and I was a, an RN in, and, and uh, EMT in construction for a lot of years. And we used the see one, do one, teach one process. Yeah, that's
0: the old surgeon's axiom. And that's how surgeons learn how to do surgery, is that they see a procedure done under the hand of a skilled surgeon. uh, And then they do one under the watchful eye of that surgeon. And then the most important part is that they teach that to someone else. And people actually learn more by doing the teaching than even the other two parts of it. But uh, training really should be based on see one, do one, teach one.
1: And, and that, when that's
0: combined with education, that's pretty powerful.
1: It, yes. And that, and that teach one, you know, you can see one, you can do one. But when you have to teach someone that you prepare better, yep. you think it through. And then you deliver it and you learn from that process. It's a key part of becoming an effective trainer. Is that how training.
0: many folks out there actually do that? I mean, when you think about safety training out there, right. how many companies actually use that process? Uh, you know, a lot of times you have a trainer that does the training, but how often do they actually prepare those people that do the training to actually become trainers themselves to That's train right. other people? That's right.
1: And mentor them, yeah. Which, which is what should be happening. yeah. Also, you know, testing and requirements for testing has changed a lot and, and still maybe needs some attention. And that's, you know, we have the practical part of testing, which is all good and important and critical. But we also, and, and some regulations require us to do written or oral testing. And, and again, you know, whether it's written or oral, that can be a bit of an issue in, in, uh, in our industry where maybe literacy uh, isn't all that good. So we need to be flexible enough to do both of those. But I asked this question quite a bit where you're, yes, you're doing rigging training, for example, and you have a student who gets a 75 or 80% correct on his written test. So do you just give him a card? Do you have a number? You know, is that problematic? And, and uh, you know, I'm not giving legal advice. This is something you should talk with your counsel about is how you manage that and manage the documentation of that. But my theory has always been that they don't get the card until such time as they can correctly answer all of those questions. Now that is gonna mean you're gonna need, no, don't just feed them the answer, but go back through the part that perhaps they didn't understand for clarification until you're confident that they understood all the parts uh, that they may have been short on there. Because especially, you know, after an incident or an accident, and all of that stuff becomes discoverable. And you got a guy who got a 75 on his rigging test and, and he was the rigger for that event that occurred. And that that can be a problem for us. Not bad. Something folks need to think about. And again, talk to your own internal counsel about it.
0: You know, in a worst case scenario is the fact that uh, sometimes people don't do any measurement of comprehension.
1: <laughs> and
0: so, you know, there's, there's a huge mistake when we tell somebody something and assume that they understood, because there are so many things that interfere with understanding and retention. And so that's a huge mistake of just telling someone, I hear that a lot of times, well, they were told. Just because they were told doesn't mean they got it. And if there's not some verification that they got it, that's a huge mistake on our part.
1: Well, yeah, and and the assumption that in the best of training, people walk away with 100% retention is kidding yourself, that we know that doesn't happen, right? So it requires follow-up. So I agree with you completely. I get very frustrated and say, well, he was trained, you know, so he signed his name. Like somehow there's some magic to the fact that the guy signed his name that that he took the training. Um, Something else that I hear you talk about quite a bit is that we do safety training, but we don't do job or task training.
0: That's a huge gap uh, in almost every industry out there. There, There's a huge tendency to teach people safety rules, uh, to teach regulations, but not teach people how to actually do the job, to do the task itself. Uh, You know, you just take uh, example in construction oftentimes that just, people make the assumption because a person is supposed to be a carpenter that they know how to use a skill saw.
1: Exactly.
0: And then you find out that that person has never used a skill saw in their entire life. They've never had any actual training or demonstration of how to use that that skill saw. Uh, So, you know, people need to be trained in the tasks uh, just as much as they need to be trained in rules.
1: Or they learned from someone who taught them some bad habits.
0: Yeah, that.
1: And that, that happens, happens a lot. A lot. Um, so the other issue is um, training that's just boring. Yeah. You know, and, and it, we suffer from some of us doing virtual training, and some some places where our training is kind of prescribed for us is you have that death by PowerPoint. Yeah. And you have a lack of visuals. Um, and, and how about getting attention?
0: You know, that's uh, a huge thing. Uh, a, a person, do, whether you're doing education or training, uh, one of the tricks is to get people's attention right up front. Because most people, especially workers, when they come into any kind of training session or an educational session, they're the, the, they're anticipating it's going to be boring. So they've already <laughs> got that mindset and, 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 and that's valid because so oftentimes they have been through boring training and, you know, I've heard uh, workers describe training is like, uh, about as exciting as watching paint dry. And so, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that part of it is to get people's attention right up front. There's a lot of ways you could do that. Uh, just as an example, um, uh, I won't mention any names, but I know of a a gentleman who used to do rigging training. And we actually used him for a while at Georgia Tech. And uh, when he would do rigging training at a company, the first thing he would do is pick up a chair and throw it across the room.
1: And we're not recommending that. No, no,
0: no. By (laughs) any means. In fact, we couldn't let him do that at Georgia Tech either, by the way. But uh, I'll tell you, it got people's attention. In fact, I remember a class at Georgia Tech where he had a guy come down out of the audience and ask him to lay down on the floor. So the guy lays down on the floor, he walked around talking for 20 minutes, never used the guy for anything. Just <laughs> left the guy laying in the floor. But this guy, you could not help but pay attention to this guy because you never knew what he was going to do next. So getting that attention right up front is absolutely critical. And you know, another thing too, is to get that audience engagement right up front. Mm-hmm. Uh, A trainer really should engage the audience within the first two minutes, you know, whether that be through introductions or whether Mm -hmm. that be asking direct questions. But but to get them involved in the first two minutes, you know, when a trainer drones on for 15, 20 minutes, you can already see the eyes starting to glaze over out there. Yeah. And then and then one other part about that uh, is making sure that we let people know what's in it for them. Most people don't go to training or educational sessions just because they want to get training or education. And failure to let people know, you know, the DOE acronym, W-I-I-F-M, what's in it for me? By letting people know and discuss what's in it for them will help to, uh, to maintain that attention a whole lot more. That's important.
1: And so getting away from the uh, death by PowerPoint is is to not overuse it, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's a good training tool, but to, you know, use exercises, brainstorming sessions, you know, group breakout sessions to, to do things like that, but to have that engagement to keep people engaged. You know, something I had been guilty of, and in fact, I did a little post on LinkedIn about this the other day is that, Seems like every time I went to LinkedIn, all I see is pictures of workers screwing up. Yeah, it's and, disturbing. And it's disturbing. And we do the same thing in training, is that we show pictures and we use videos of workers screwing up. I actually had a, a Spanish speaking um, worker <laughs> say to me one time in training, goes, how come I keep seeing pictures of Spanish people screwing up? And I thought, you know, wow. Um, so I, it's it's an effort on my part to, to focus away from that and to show people how to, not how not to. And,
0: or at least balance that. I mean, it's okay at least to show it. here's how you don't do it and here's how you do do it. Right. Uh, you know, those comparisons are kind of valuable, but I see that too. And, you know, one of the worst things, I've seen that on LinkedIn too, where somebody's kind of, Uh, safety professionals actually making fun of the people who are involved in unsafe acts is if they are so superior uh, to the people out doing the acts uh, without, you know, we know from human performance that people do what they do because of the context of the work itself.
1: exactly And and
0: so that truly uh, from a safety professional standpoint is unprofessional and demeaning to the, to the workers. Uh, That's disturbing. I hate to see that out there.
1: Well, it ties in with that can't fix stupid comment. That we yeah. hear so much, and, and you know, you know, we love the comedian. He's, he's funny as all get out, Ron White. But we, as safety professionals, should not be saying that can't fix stupid. That's that takes us back to the old view, not the new view of safety. Yeah, and it
0: illustrates a complete ignorance of human factors and uh, right, uh, you know, human forms.
1: And another thing, when when I was talking you know, offline with you about, um, safety training that you mentioned was, um, and this is a bigger issue in safety overall is not including the recovery piece.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. So what if things fail? So what if things fail? What if things change? So, you know, fall protection should include that. What if you fall, right? Same thing with, with trenching, with confined space, um, what if things change? That's a big issue is how do you handle change? And I think about that, you do an awful lot of uh, NFPA lotto kind of training and, and do we cover that adequately in training is what should someone do when now things are not according to the to the plan?
0: Yeah, and that really speaks to a couple of things. One is it speaks to the, uh, the human performance concept of work as imagined versus work as practiced. The straight line exactly. versus the crooked blue line is the exactly. word part of it ever goes as it's planned. That's
1: right. And so we
0: don't do enough talking uh, with people about when things don't go as planned uh, or if the plan changes, what should they do? Right. Uh, and the other part, what you're talking about is the organizational resilience part. Yes. Uh, we do put way too many eggs in a prevention basket, but sometimes those preventative efforts certainly fail. That's right. And and we really don't put enough thought and emphasis on what do you do when those preventative efforts fail? What's the recovery side? And that should be balanced
1: or just planning for failure. Yeah, we don't plan for failure.
0: Right. We just assume we got up. People are tied off and
1: everything's uh, great.
0: You got it. You got all the, the PPE on and everything's going to be great and wonderful. And we don't plan for the fact that sometimes things fail. Machines fail sometimes.
1: You know, another thing we see a lot, and again, this has been our career for decades, but we're not perfect and we make mistakes. Right. But there are folks out there doing things like regulatory training that don't know their topic. They do not know the topic. They don't have competency in the topic. And, you know, I like to stay, stay in your dog, doggone lane here, right?
0: You know, it's kind of like in our consulting practice, we try yeah. to very much stick to the things that we know, right? Not purport to do things that we don't know. For example, okay. I'm not an industrial hygienist, and I'll be the exactly. very first one to say I am not an industrial hygienist. And we get calls for that sometimes. Yes, and we do. So, you know, our approach is to refer them to a professional industrial hygienist and not try to go out there and pretend that we are that just for the sake of making money.
1: That's right. Or, you know, there are things where we have some expertise in the subject matter, but we don't have expertise in doing the training. And I, you and I, I mean, I've benefited from co-training with you so many times where instead of just hopping out there and doing it, I'm working with you or working with someone else until I feel comfortable and competent to do that. Sure, training.
0: and vice versa, yeah.
1: You know, so trainers need to not only be subject matter experts in the subject themselves, but also in the industry that they're serving. You know, um, folks who come from an industrial safety background now going to do training for people in wood frame and residential and, and all the material that they're gonna use is from an industrial setting, and that's just not gonna work. You've got to actually know the company and, and, and how they do their work.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's gotta be purpose, It's gotta be relevant. You know, relevancy is a huge part of training. It is.
1: And then the other thing is that, and you and I know some folks that are so doggone smart in, in their subject matter, their subject matter experts in certain things, but darn, they can't train.
0: <laughs> there are some folks who are just not cut out to no? be trainers or educators. Right. Very smart people, but they simply don't have the ability to deliver.
1: Right. And,
0: the, you know, it really kind of speaks a lot to organizations selecting trainers and making sure those trainers are qualified and that they have the skills to deliver.
1: Yeah, that's a huge issue, and especially for large companies where you're going to have uh, a number of trainers. Not only is it up to the company to evaluate the competency of those trainers, but to ensure consistent messaging by all of those trainers and can and to ensure consistent delivery of materials that we don't have conflicts where you, Oh, well, you know, I took this class, you know, a year ago and Jim said this, and now you're saying that, and and there has to be that we can't lose credibility out there with the workforce. Um, So that's important.
0: You know, everybody can't be an expert in everything. No. And so it may be that people have very strong uh, technical knowledge and delivery skills in one particular area, but not in another, and it's okay to bring in other trainers. It, it's okay to bring in outside people or vendors, uh, people who can deliver a lot deeper information, uh, and and that's that's okay to do that.
1: You 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 were just dealing with us this week with a client of ours that that they finally realized that they did not have the internal capability to effectively deliver the training. And they went to using an outside vendor for that. Now, on the issue of external trainers, (laughs) um, you know, I've been the one that deals with this question all the time in this company for years now, is that someone calls and says, can you do XYZ training? And we go, well, yes, we do. We do provide that. And the first thing we want to know is what's the price? Right. And
0: that's a red flag.
1: So they're not asking about, you know, are you good at it or what's your background in it or or your qualifications to do that kind of training? They just want to know the price. In fact, I remember this a few years back. I had someone call and wanted a 10, 30 hour class. And it's like, well, yeah, we can do that. And they they said, Well, how long is it going to last? You know, it's like, well, a 10 hours, is 10 hours. And they're like, oh. Uh-huh, hmm. And then uh, asked for the price, I gave him a price and they're like, well, well, I got to tell you, you know, when we did this last time, the guy did it in two hours and he charged, you know, pennies on the dollar for what you're saying here. And that probably wasn't right, was it? And I said, no, it's not right. It's, it's not right at all. And he said, OK, well, I'll call you back. Well, I never heard from him again. So, you know, and I know, and the American people know how, how that went. They went back to their two-hour guy.
0: You know, it kind of gets back to that check-the-box training. That's one of the red flags of check-the-box. When people are more concerned about the price than they are the quality of the training, then that's a red flag. They're just looking to have somebody's signature on a piece of paper that if they get uh, inspected by OSHA or uh, they have an accident, they've got some documentation to show the insurance company, and so they just want to check the box at the cheapest price. And frankly... From, from our company standpoint, we're just not interested in clients that want to do that.
1: Well, you've uh, been, in, in pretty, fact, we,
0: yeah, we turned been, down that business.
1: Yeah. You've been verbal about that. And I've, I've adopted the same thing. You know, just ask the question, look, if you're just price shopping, because you know what, we're not going to be the cheapest. Yep. So call somebody else. Um, another thing, and, and, can't fully answer this issue but there it is important to do records retention oh yes and we find a lot of times where companies maybe be making the assumption that their safety people are retaining the records or whatever it's up to the company to make sure that they have policies and processes for records retention you know and and so what do you keep now this varies when it comes to regulatory training, this varies by the regulations. We can't say one size fits all, but, but definitely you always want to keep the content of the training or the materials that were used to, in the training. Um, testing information, if you know, assuming you have testing, trainer's signature, their name, uh, perfect world, their qualifications, you know, the dates of the trainings, employees' names. Um, And then how long to keep keep it, it it varies by regulations. We can't answer that across the board, but minimum for anything is always the length of employment for that that worker. That's the minimum of that. So you gotta check your regulations. And it's also another one of those things that safety needs to be talking to your, your counsel about that documentation piece.
0: Um, yeah, you know, it get, kind of gets back from a legal standpoint, too. And this is not legal advice, but the old axiom that if it, it's not in writing, it didn't happen. So oh, yeah. Organizations that don't keep training records uh, could easily be looked at as they just didn't do it.
1: And, and it's also the company needs to understand that it's their responsibility to keep those records. Yeah. It's not the responsibility. um of outside trainers, I mean, we do our best to keep records, but at the end of the day, it's it's their company and it's their training. And then we well, even- know we've seen
0: that. Uh, you know, I know I don't do as much of the regulatory stuff at Georgia Tech anymore that you and Philip do, but uh, you know, over the years, I've seen that a lot where uh, a, a a an OSHA trainer would leave a company, right? And they were they were keeping the records personally yep. rather than keep them with the company. And then when they got audited, OSHA doesn't want to hear that that trainer worked here and he left five years ago or she left five years ago and they've got the training records. It's incumbent on that employer to keep those records.
1: Well, but it it goes both directions. Yeah. Because it also is incumbent upon that. Now, when it comes to uh, 10 and 30 hour training, OSHA can revoke the trainer status um, for a trainer if they let the company keep the records and they didn't keep records.
0: Yeah. So it, falls so it needs to go through, both ways.
1: It needs to go both directions for sure. And uh, that's the world Philip is living in a lot these days, isn't it? Um, another thing that a lot of folks aren't aware of in safety, um, which is kind of sad when you think about it, is that there are ANSI standards for safety and health training, safety, health and environmental training. And if we are as a company trying to live in the best practice world, not the minimum requirements, then, you know, we are obviously going to follow OSHA requirements for training, but we're also going to be aware of and incorporate some of those ANSI um, standard requirements. There's also a, um, there's a new, new ANSI standard coming out specifically on the online delivery of training, which is, another conversation. But it, you know so things that are in there is, is needs assessments, doing needs assessments and, and developing learning objectives um, and, and evaluations. I wanted to let's talk about evaluations for just a minute. Uh, you know in Pam's perfect world, you would always do written evaluations and, and frankly, we don't always do that with some types of training. But how important are those evaluations? the trainer
0: you know people only get better through feedback and i've known trainers who don't want that feedback uh they avoid that feedback but the quality of the trainer is not in the eyes of the trainer it's in the eyes of the audience Mm -hmm. and so the best evaluation of how well a trainer is training and how well the training is delivered is in the eyes of the people, the trainees. And so those evaluations are direct, instant feedback of what was good and what needs to be fixed. And if a trainer utilizes that for continuous improvement, you only get better and better and better. But, uh, you know, I know of one situation. We know of an individual who made a comment a while back that um, they don't want the feedback, that they... they, they do not care what the audience thinks. Yeah, That's a serious mistake. And that's a, to me, that's a trainer that should not be trained.
1: Yeah, that you gotta have that feedback. You know, and and obviously an informal evaluation process is a good thing, but something I see you do all the time, I try to emulate it because I think it's a good practice is at a minimum asking people at the end of the training, what did you learn today? Give me something you got out of this today you got a bunch of folks can't give you anything you know uh uh-oh that's not looking good but it also gives you an idea of what's stuck in their head what what kind of stood out from that training
0: yeah doing takeaways is a good it's a good informal way of kind of doing a uh a little mini evaluation of you know what did they actually get out of the
1: training and so that falls into the the ANSI standard for EHS training that talks about that four level evaluation process. And the first one is reaction is after the training, ask for feedback, uh, you know, what'd you learn? How, how did it go? And then testing, which we already kind of touched on. But now the cri- here's the critical one that gets missed so much and that's called the behavior section. And that's following the training, right? Observing employees to see if it's been integrated. You wanna talk about that? follow-up?
0: Yeah, you know, uh, the, the two components that are really important in uh, training is retention and transference. And retention is the amount of information that people actually retain. But that's only a part of it. Transference is the most important. And what transference is is, is the trainee exhibiting the behaviors and the skills that they learned through the training uh, based on the retention. And so transference has to be, uh, reinforced. In other words, supervisors pretty much have a duty once somebody goes through training to watch them work and make sure they're working and that the behaviors are congruent with what they learned in the training. And then when they are to reinforce those behaviors to continue more of those behaviors, and if they're not to, you know, to, to to provide some constructive coaching, but, uh, Uh, failure to assure transference uh, undermines retention very shortly over time.
1: Well, and not just in the short term, but also the long term because of the drift. Right. Yeah, because we know you're going to drift. You may everybody kind of gets plumbed up right after that training. But then what's happened six months down the road to that? And and have we drifted from some of those principles?
0: I mean, you even see that in new higher safety orientations as people, they go and learn all the company rules and the way you do things and the procedures, and then they go out and do the right thing. Nobody says anything. And then they do the right thing and nobody says anything. And after a while, you start getting not only knowledge drift, but you get behavioral drift as well. And um, I mean, it's huge. Those behaviors have to be reinforced.
1: That reminds me of another thing that someone said, you talk about safety orientations is <clears throat> I heard a worker say after training one time is that, you know, made some comment about, yeah, so that's because, you know, they go to new hire trade, uh, new hire safety training for every new job and often different general contractors or whatever. And he said, you know, yeah, you, you go to the new hire orientation and that's what the safety department tells you in the new hire orientation. And then you walk out of there and you walk out the job and you just took a, take a good look around and see what what is it we really do. Yeah. Because a great deal of the time they don't match up.
0: Or a supervisor asks them to do something that's counter to what they were trying to do.
1: And I had that happen in a um, safety training session one time where. Um, the supervisor actually said, okay, you know, met them at the doors. They were coming out and he goes, okay, you heard all that. Now let's go out and you're going to do what I say we're going to do. And we're going to get the job done. You know, he just completely deflated all of that.
0: There goes both retention and transference.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're going to have to do a couple of follow-up safety training things. That, some of the things I want to do. One is um, uh, on the whole language issue because I'm not even going to open that can of worms because that's a huge, huge issue. Issue is uh, multi-language and cultural training. So I'm going to bring in a subject matter expert on that. And the other one is technology and training. And I'm not an expert in that either. So I want to bring some folks in. And we probably need to bring Philip in just because we have had such a wonderful set of laughs for years now about Philip's, training experiences would you not agree oh yeah <laughs> we from uh it, and we have a whole you know folder on the server about places Phillips had to do training you know like in the uh job trailer that had no power and you got a generator running at the time and five gallon buckets for seats and no air conditioning in the shop and it goes on and on and on so
0: that conjures up a specific memory uh where i was doing some training i'm in some five-star hotel somewhere and he texts me a picture of where he's training it was exactly (laughs) what you're talking about
1: i know i know so we may have to do a follow-up on that one as well but anyway, that's that's the talk for today. A little bit on safety training. It's a big topic and it's a continuous improvement topic. We, we always have to strive to get better. And we're all doing that as well. Thanks for joining me here this morning. Thanks, folks. See you later. Take care.